following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, what's significant about the timing of this prayer is it says it was during the first year of Darius. Uh, I believe there's some debate on this, and you can take whatever view you want, but I believe Darius was probably Cyrus. Either way, Darius and Cyrus, if they're not the same person, began reigning the same year. And it was during that first year we know that uh, Cyrus sent some of the Israelites back to Jerusalem to start building the temple. right? And that's exactly what Daniel's praying for. So we know that... Uh, Within, within a year at least, maybe less, maybe just a few months of Daniel praying this prayer, God responded and answered. Uh, but what's interesting about this prayer is that Daniel, he says he perceives that the number of years in Jeremiah that they would be in exile, that the, the Israelites, that the Jewish people would be held captive in Babylon, was how many years? Seventy, right? Seventy years, okay? So... But here's the thing. When do you start counting those 70 years? Right? Now, Daniel uh, was taken captive uh, to Babylon in the year 605. Okay? 605. Right? Um, but he was in a very small and select group of nobles and, and uh, talented young men that were taken not really so much as a captivity as much as just uh, siphoning off some of the brain power of, of Israel to, to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. The actual exile didn't happen for 18 years later in 587. So in 587, after some of Israel, uh, Judah, Judah's kings were stupid and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, he swept in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took those who he didn't kill back into exile in Babylon. Right? So if you're counting 70 years... Where do you start counting? 605 when Daniel was taken or 587 when everybody else was taken? Well, Daniel decided to start counting in 605. Right? Daniel's like, I've been here 70 years almost. That's good for me. Right? And so he, he prays. And, and part of what I think his prayer for mercy is, is that God would make his time count. It's like, you know, uh, God had to part justice. He promised judgment on Israel. Uh, and, and part of what Daniel's kind of praying here is, God, make my years in exile count as part of that 70 so that we could be released and return and your temple be rebuilt sooner than later. And God actually answers that prayer. In fact, God answers that prayer so faithfully that from Daniel until the return, uh, even if you count those years, it was actually only 68 years, not 70, right? So God was merciful, right? And if you're counting from the rest of the exile, it was way short of the 70, right? So, um, so the point is, Daniel prays and God answers his prayer in, in a powerful and merciful way. Um, and, and Daniel realizes it's getting close to the end, and so he prays this prayer, and it works, right? Now, this is, uh, we're going to look at the example of his prayer, use it as a model. There are a lot of examples of prayer in Scripture, and this is just one Right? When the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray, teach us to pray, Jesus did not say, well, you already have the example of Daniel. That's all you need. Right? No. Uh, there's a lot of prayers. So it's not like this is the only way to pray. 
but it's, it's a prayer that God answered powerfully, and so I think we can learn from it. Uh, how did Daniel pray that could teach us how to pray more effectively? What's interesting is uh, not only did God answer his prayer, but in verse 23, part of the answer, which we're going to look more at detail um, how, how God answered his prayer next week. But uh, he sends Gabriel with a message, with part of the answer, or the answer that, that God's going to give him, right? And, 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 and so I've never had this happen where I was praying and an angel showed up to give me an answer. That would be pretty cool. That's what happened to Daniel. Gabriel shows up with an, uh, a word. And as part of that, he says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Right now, God loves, God loves us all. Right, and and uh, but this 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 is definitely putting Daniel in a different category. Uh, Daniel had prayed in a way that had endeared God's favor. Right, and the word here for love could literally be translated treasured, or precious, or cherished. Right, Daniel had put himself in a place before God where God responded. Uh, where he just treasured and, and valued Daniel as a person individually. The answer has a lot more to do with Israel as a whole, but God is, is moved to connect with Daniel. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of relationship with God, where through prayer we are connecting with God like that, where God would say, man, you are precious to me. Right? Uh, so how did Daniel pray? What, what is it that caused God to re- respond with such affection and grace and power. Well, uh, there's five things we can observe about Daniel's prayer that I think are instructive for us as we pray, right, to help us pray more effectively. So the first thing we see is that uh, Daniel begins by humbling himself before God. Right? Any real prayer that's going to be effective begins with humility. Right? Uh, it says in verse 3, Daniel says, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So he went without food, and he put on sackcloth, which was basically bags that they would put beans or flour in, and it was rough. It was, in, in English, we call it burlap, right? This is, not, this is not silk or linen. It's rough, right? And it's... Uh, it's it would be like, like poor people wouldn't even wear this, right? And it's a way of showing just his poorness, his state of lowliness before God. And, and put on his head ashes, which is a sign of grief and sadness and sorrow, right? And these are all pictures of, of humility, right? Uh, Daniel is pleading for mercy. That means he's seeking God's help, and he knows he doesn't deserve it, right? We'll talk a little bit more and unpack that a bit later. But this is not a demand, uh, Daniel's not coming before God saying, God, the 70 years are up. You better come through on your promise. <laughs> That's not the attitude of Daniel. He comes with humility, seeking God's mercy, knowing he, they don't deserve it. Right. Uh, so he starts with this attitude of humility, of sackcloth and ashes, these physical symbols of his loneliness and, and his, his uh, unworthiness before God. Right. Uh, what's interesting uh, also is that uh, Daniel, if, you, if, you've, if you've been with us through the story of Daniel, we've seen that Daniel um, has been really an outstanding person from the time he was a young man until he was old. Right? His story begins 
with refusing to eat the king's good food because he doesn't want to defile himself and break the law, even though he knows it could cost him his life. But he chooses to obey God rather than uh, just go along with the crowd right? And, and, and somehow break the law. He wants to honor God and do the right thing. So Daniel's even as a young man, 16, 17 years old, proves that he's got character, that he is obedient to God, that he's following the word, right? And then, of course, at the end of his life, we saw the story of Daniel in the lion's den, where he chooses to be eaten by lions rather than not praying, right? And he really kind of defies the king and says, yeah, sure, throw me in jail, but I'm praying. I'm worshiping my God. I'm not letting you tell me... uh, how to live, I'm going to obey God first. So here's a guy who is godly, righteous, obedient. But uh, he identifies, he puts himself in the place of sinful Israel. Right? When he puts on these sackcloth and ashes, it's not because he was such a wicked, terrible person. But he is identifying with the sin of all of his country, all of his people, that brought them to this place of being in captivity and exile. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm one of these people. I'm guilty like they are because I am an Israelite. I am a Jew. And just like all the Jews have rebelled and been wicked and have turned against you, I am one of them. Right? That's humility. Right? He identifies with their sinfulness. Now you may... Uh, we're going to talk, as Nathan said, we're going to talk a lot about confession because the biggest part of Daniel's prayer is actually confession. Um, how many of you find, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, but how many of you find confession just natural and easy? Like you just, right? Maybe, maybe not, right? Maybe you go to confess, maybe you know, I'm, I know I'm supposed to confess, and you think, okay, God, what did I do wrong today? And you just struggle. Like honestly, like, you know, like being proud, you just really struggle because you're like, well, I didn't run over anybody. Uh, I didn't beat anybody up. Uh, I didn't steal anything, you know. I, I didn't look at anything bad on the Internet. I don't know what to confess, right? Well, let me help you. Okay, let me help you, right? Uh, we are part of the human race, and, and we are one with Adam, right? And here's the truth. If you didn't look at something bad on the Internet today, and if you didn't steal something, and if you didn't kill anybody... It is God's grace that you didn't do it, not your goodness. Right? You are as fallen as the worst guy in prison. And if it wasn't for God's grace, it could be you. Right? You could be that person. And, and Daniel was aware of that. He's like, yeah, you know, I made good choices and I, I lived a different life. But the truth is, I'm one with Israel. And it could have been me. I could have been... Just as wicked, just as fallen, right? We share in humanity's sins because we are part of the fallen human race, right? And look around you and look at the sins that are out there and start there. And that's exactly what Daniel does, as we'll see in a minute. Right? He's not confessing his own sins, but he's owning the sins of his people. And he's confessing them, right? Um, you, may, you may look around at the, and I hear this often how horrible the church is. What a mess the church is. Anybody agree? The church is a mess, boy. And boy, they're not teaching the Bible. They're not sharing their faith. They're not making disciples. They're, boy, it's a good thing I'm better than that, right? It's a good thing I am living my Christian life and I don't have to... Boy, the church, though, it's a mess. Did you know that you, you 
are the body of Christ. You are one with the body of Christ. If the, if the church is a mess, you're a part of it. Sorry. Right? We can't extract ourselves over here and say, well, I'm spiritual, but the church is a mess. No, you're the church. Right? If the church is a mess, you're, you're a part. Right? And we need to identify with that. Uh, you can go on down the list, right? Yes, this, this past week I was talking to a Thai person, and when they found out I was American, they, they quite shamed me because of the Americans, uh, uh, the U.S.'s involvement backing Israel. And she basically said, um, it's really sad that the United States is attacking and destroying innocent people in, in Palestine. <laughs> uh, I was tempted to get into her with that, but I decided that was not the time, so I didn't say anything right. But you know what? Um, we, 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 we are part of the nation we come from. And there's a sense in which we share in that country's guilt. So I don't know what country you're from, but I'm, I'm pretty sure your country is guilty of something. Right? And uh, you share, right? You're, you're a citizen of that country. And, and, and that's Daniel. Daniel knew he was a citizen of Israel. And so in a sense, he shared in the guilt of all Israel. Uh, you can go down to your family. Like, is everybody in your family godly, walks on water, holy, right? Or are there those people in your family who everybody's ashamed of uh, because of their lifestyle, their, their, their sins, right? We share in that, right? The point is, confession is not just about, and the Christian life is not just about me and my solo venture with God, Right? We, we are a part of a community. We are a part of a nation. We are a part of a family. We are a part of a church. And we share together. So, like Daniel, it's a great place to start with humility and just admitting that we're a member of a very fallen, wicked, evil group of people. And you can pick the group, right? And uh, that, that we have no right before God to demand based on our goodness, uh, to demand of him anything. To tell God what he needs to do, right? It doesn't work that way. And Daniel knows that. So he comes bowing before God in sackcloth and ashes. And I'm not saying you need to go around and, you know, find sackcloth, wear ashes. But it's the spirit of the heart, right? That we bow in humility before God. Second thing, uh, he praises God. Right? Verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, he starts with a brief, and it is somewhat brief, but he starts with a brief word of the greatness and awesome of, awesomeness of God. And one of the few times, in fact, chapter 9 is the only place in the whole book of Daniel where we see the, the term Yahweh used, the, the covenant name for God. Right? The rest of it is other names. But in chapter 9, where he's praying almost exclusively in this prayer, he turns back to the relational God of Israel, right? He says, Yahweh, you are great and awesome. You are mighty. You are powerful. And then he says, you are the, the covenant God. In other words, God, you are the God who makes and keeps promises, right? You entered into this relationship with Israel through the covenant uh, with Moses and Mount Sinai, and you made these promises to uh, make us a people and a, and a land and a nation and a country, where your name would dwell. And you have kept those promises. You are a promise-keeping God. And not only do you keep your promises, but you keep your love. And this is the, the word for love that really represents God's steadfast, enduring love. 
Uh, and in a minute, he's going to be calling on that love. You know, that, that he is unworthy, but he's counting on the goodness and love of God to forgive and to show grace. Right? And he says that this God, God loves, he keeps covenant and love with those who, who love him and obey him. Right? And it's important that he put those two terms together. He doesn't just say, you keep covenant with those who obey you. But he said, with those who obey you and love you. So there's two kinds of obedience. One kind of obedience is trying to do the right thing to earn God's approval and to manipulate God into doing what we want, right? See, God, I did all the right things you owe me. But that's not the kind of obedience he's talking about here. He's talking about the obedience that comes out of a love relationship where we experience God's love and we want to do what's pleasing to him because we love him back. And so we obey because we want to please God, not to earn, earn his help or deserve his help. Right? So he praises God. Uh, short, but he starts there with, with giving God worship. Then comes uh, really the, the main content or body of his prayer, uh, which comes down to really pleading or begging for God's mercy. Right? A plea for God's mercy. And uh, there's a couple important components to this. And the first one is confession. And uh, he, he identifies with, as I said, with Israel. And this is really confession on the behalf of all of Israel. And this is his prayer. He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, that's who you are. But we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have now listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. He, he just starts naming off all these sins, right? We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled. Okay, all pictures of people defying God, and not listening to his voice. Right? We have turned us away from your, aside from your commandments. We've gone our own way. We haven't gone in the path that you've led us in. We've made up our own path on our own way. We have not listened. right? Uh, so God sent many prophets to remind them, to call them back. And he said, we've ignored them. We haven't listened to the prophets or obeyed uh, their voice. And you sent them to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to everyone. But we've ignored them. All right, that's, that's a lot, right? A lot of sin. But Daniel's not done, right? There's more, right? To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them. Right? We are ashamed. We have been sent into exile, which is humiliating, Right? We have been kicked out of our land, kicked out of our country because of our sin, right? Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. The treachery isn't just sin, but treachery is sneaky sin. It's going behind somebody's back to do wrong, to trick them, to deceive them, right? It's pretending to be doing the right thing in front of them, then going around behind them and lying and deceiving and cheating, um, to us, O oh Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
Verse 9, For we have rebelled against God and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law, turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So, So in other words, Daniel doesn't just say, God, you know, we've sinned, sorry, and move on. I mean, he really digs into this, right? This is the main content. He spends 80% of his prayer uh, talking about their rebellion, their turning away from this law, their refusal to do what he commanded, uh, their wickedness against God, their treachery, right? Their rebellion. Um, Right, and this is all to their shame. Right, it's resulted in exile, and it's to their shame. Right, he says, "To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame." Um, the the wages of sin is death. Right, the cost and price of sin is God's wrath and judgment and humiliation. And ultimately, uh, he, he in a minute we'll see. He says, "God is righteous. God was right to bring judgment on us." He was right to let his wrath fall on us because we were so terrible. Uh, and if you don't believe it, uh, just go back and read through the Old Testament accounts of how the people sinned over and over and over again. And God forgave them, and he restored them, and then they sinned again and again and again with ever deeper uh, sins and ever greater rebellion against God. Um, so that's the first thing. He's confessing how unworthy they are, how sinful they've been. But what's interesting is he contrasts that against the character and nature of God. Right? Uh, he proclaims in the midst of all, all this, he proclaims God as righteous. And righteous is a big word that we use kind of only in religious circles. Uh, we don't, well, maybe use it as slang, you know, for that's a righteous ride or those are some righteous clothes you got. It means like cool. Uh, but what does righteous really mean? Well, it actually means more than just cool. It means it's, it's doing the right thing, right? If you're righteous, it means you do what is right. You do what's good. You do what you're supposed to. And he says, to you, O Lord, o Lord belongs righteousness. In other words, God always does the right thing. Always. Right? Israel kind of almost never did the right thing, uh, but he says, but to, but to God belongs righteousness. And because he's right in everything he does, he's good in all that he does. Right? Uh, right is always good. Right? Always. Wrong is never good. Uh, but God is right. He always does the right thing. He is good. Um, so therefore, even judgment, and, and what Daniel's kind of unpacking here, is that even in judgment, even in wrath, even in causing, sending Israel off into exile, it was the right thing. It was the good thing because they deserved it, right? And, and God did this not just because he was angry, not just because he was frustrated with them, but ultimately because he wanted to bring them back, right? Um, it says in verse 11, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. So if you remember, we looked at this in Deuteronomy. If you were around last year, um, God made this covenant. And in the covenant, he lists all these curses that would happen to them if they were unfaithful. 
and the curses culminated, they ended in being drug off in exile as prisoners. Right? He says, you warned us. And it's the right thing. It's, it's the judgment that we deserve. And then verse 12, he says, he's confirmed these words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, by bringing on us this great calamity. We deserve it. Right? For under the whole heaven, there's not been anything done like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Right? And what was the hope? The hope was that as God squeezed them, as God brought disaster, they would say, God, we sinned. We were wrong. We confess. We repent. We turn back to you. But notice what he says in verse 13. He says, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. We have not turned from our iniquities. We have not gained insight by your word, by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready this calamity and has brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works uh, and that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Right? So, so God has been just and righteous in uh, sending him into exile, uh, hoping that they would wake up, hoping that they would turn back to him. And when they didn't, he, he brought the full weight of his anger and justice upon them. Right? Uh, Therefore, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Right? Because we have sinned against you, he says. Now this all seems so dis- kind of dis- dark and discouraging, right? This is, this is heavy stuff. Um, uh, Daniel paints this picture of Israel as fallen, rebellious. I mean, imagine, imagine a high school student who, who would be described this way. A teenager who's rebellious, who's wicked, who never follows directions, who doesn't do what his parents say or his teachers, who's constantly going his own way, who's stubborn, who just does what he wants. Right? What would you think about a kid like that? You probably wouldn't want to give him a job at Chick-fil-A or anywhere else, right? Um, you would think, well, that's a rotten kid, right? He deserves to be punished. Somebody should do something about a kid like that, right? Well, that was Israel, right? And, and he says God was right in punishing him. But it just seems so discouraging, right? And, um, and when we think about praying, uh, how often does this kind of confession fill up our prayers, I'll be honest, for me, not very often. Like, every once in a while, I kind of know I mess up, and so I'll go to God and I'll confess, oh, God, you know, I said something really stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I've done something really stupid. I'll confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we go on our merry way. Amen. Right? But, like, this, is, this just seems discouraging. Like, why would we spend so much time focusing on all the sins of the world and all the sins of our nation and all the sins of the church? Why would we do this? This seems like such a discouraging practice. Um, And yet, I really believe it's in here, and and Daniel models this, because there is some value in this. I'm not saying this should be our prayer every day or all the time. For Daniel, I guess you could say this was 70 years in the waiting. (laughs) We don't know if you prayed this before, but... um, the timing mattered, right? It's, it's, it's getting towards the end of their sentence. 
So why? Why is it so important to rehearse and go through all of these sins? Well, I think the, the reason is this. It's only when we come to fully understand how terrible we really are or how uh, terrible we would be if we live like the full potential of what, what we have in us. Right? If God did not restrain and hold back, if God's grace was not holding that back in us, uh, how sinful we would be, right? how much we really are part of the human race and, and how bad the human race is. It's not hard to imagine this one, right? We see the wars and the hatred, right? Um, and it's, it's terrible, right? Something of rehearsing that before God. How much I am like my culture and my nation, right? How much I belong to that. How much I'm part of the body of Christ and I'm, I'm one of the messed up people in this messed up church, right? How much I share in the sins of my family, not to mention my own great failures and sins. You see... It's only when we come to see how terrible that is and how devastating the effects of sin, right? That sin produces more sin. That sin brings judgment. That sin brings God's wrath. That the cost and the price of sin is death and judgment, right? The more we, it's only when we come to really come to the fullness of that, only then will we really come to know the real meaning of grace. Right? It's only then that we really will understand what grace is. Right? I think most of us have way too shallow and superficial an idea of grace. Now we know we know it's grace, right? We know we're saved by grace and we use that term, we throw it around and we know, you know, for by grace I have been saved through faith. Amen. Hallelujah, right? And but, but do we really understand the weight and significance of that word, right? Uh, do we really understand what it means for us to be saved by God's grace? Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2 this way. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right, do you have any idea the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus? Uh, it means it's so rich, it's so valuable, it can't be counted. Right? Um, you see, Daniel comes to God realizing that, and he comes, he says, he is pleading for mercy. He's going, God, we, we don't deserve this. And this is really interesting because uh, Jeremiah said that the, it's going to last 70 years, the exile, and after 70 years, God's going to send you back, right? Daniel could have thought, well, good, I'm almost at the end of my 70 years. I'm going to start counting down. God, you better come through. That's amazingly not his attitude. Daniel's like, no, God, we, don't, we deserve this punishment. And if this punishment continued on, we would deserve it. It is only by your grace and mercy that you would send us back. Right? Uh, 
and, and the truth is that, that there's a sense that Daniel knows that uh, that God can forgive only because they have almost completed their sentence. It's significant that Daniel doesn't pray this at the beginning of the 70 years. He doesn't confess and say, God, we deserve your mercy. Uh, I know you said 70 years, but I think two years is good. Can you send us back now, right? No. Right? He knew that they had to bear the full weight of their sentence, right? Uh, so he says in verse 8, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our, our fathers, we have sinned against you. To the Lord belongs... And this is the second time he says it. First he says to the Lord belongs righteousness. But then he says this. In verse 9 he says, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Right? Mercy and forgiveness. Right? God doesn't have to, but God who keeps covenant, God who keeps steadfast love, he is also a God of forgiveness. Um, so how is it that God can forgive sin and still be just? Because that's a problem, Right? How does God forgive sin and still be just and do what's right? Let's illustrate this, okay? Let's say uh, you just bought a brand new fancy car, your dream car, okay? I don't know what your dream car is. Maybe it's a big four-wheel drive truck. Maybe it's a super fast sports car. Maybe it's an electric car. I'll pray for you, right? Uh, I don't know what it is. Your your, your dream car, right? And uh, and somebody steals your dream car, brand new. And one day you go out and it's gone. And not only that, but you remember that you had taken off your wedding ring and you'd set it in the car and they got your wedding ring too. And so it's not just something valuable, but something precious, something precious to you. So you call the police and by some crazy chance of luck, they, they find the guy and they find the car and they find your ring and they, they go to court to per- prosecute this, this, this bad person who stole your car, right? And so the guy... The judge asked the guy, did you steal this car? And the guy says, well, yeah. Says, did you steal the ring? Well, I didn't steal the ring, but it was in the car, but I liked the ring, so I kept it, yeah. Right? And you're like, okay, this is great. I'm going to get justice. And justice means what? This guy's going to go to jail, and I'm going to get my car back and my ring. Right? But then the judge says this. He says, you know, I believe in forgiveness, and I just want to forgive you. And, you know, you can just keep the car. And the ring, right? Because I just feel like forgiving you, right? Uh, would, you, would, you, would you say, amen, let's hear it for forgiveness and mercy and grace? No, you would scream, I, no, I want justice on my car back, right? I want justice, this deserves justice, right? How can God be just and forgiving, right? How can God uphold justice and forgive you? Well, for Daniel, uh, uh, he could do that because they had served their sentence. Right? God said it would cost you 70 years, and they had spent 70 years in exile. Right? They had completed their sentence. So then, because the penalty had been paid, uh, God could forgive. Right? Uh, praise God, though, we are under even a better covenant. Right? We are under even a better covenant. Uh, the covenant, the new covenant that Jesus purchased with us for his, uh, through his blood. And, and the scripture says that the wages of sins is death. Right? The penalty for our sin is death. And, and we are guilty of a lifetime's worth of sin. So here's the problem. If, uh, if you live on average to be 70 years old, 
uh, and, and the cost of that is 70 years, how can you give a 70 years when you already spent the first 70 sinning, right? You don't have 70 more years, right? Nobody's going to live to be 140. You can't pay it back, right? You only get one life. And so you can't use a second life to pay for the mistakes of the first life. And so God is just and right in saying, you're guilty, and the penalty is your life. Right? The consequence is eternal death. This is, you pay for it with your life. Right? But praise God, um, somebody else stepped in and gave his life in our place. Right? And that was Jesus. So Ephesians 2.1 says this. Right? I read part of it. Let's back it up a little bit. In verse 1 it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Right? We were under God's wrath and judgment, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? By grace you have been saved. Jesus gave his life in our place. Right? His perfect, holy life. And he paid the penalty through his death and through the cross. Right? So that, in verse 7, in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is grace. Right? That is grace. And the point of all this is that uh, I think most of us we just have such a cheap, trivial, shallow view of grace. And the reason is that we have such a shallow, lazy attitude towards sin and the, and the price of sin. Right? And there, there is something to be said about this discipline of confession, of really coming to, to grips with the cost of, and weight and terribleness of sin and the incredible price it costs to deal with it. Right? Uh, the more we sink into that, I think the, the greater we will understand what grace really means. Right? That we are saved by grace. The, in, the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Right? And certainly that's where Daniel was. All right, two last things we need to uh, cover. The last couple of minutes, real quick. Fourth thing that Daniel prays is he prays according to God's plan. All right? Uh, he knew the word. He knew the prophet of Jeremiah. Right? So he's, he's praying in line with what, uh, what, what Scripture's already revealed. Right? Uh, in the first year of the reign of Daniel, I perceived the books of the numbers of the years According to the word given to the prophet Jeremiah, the number of years must pass before the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 
right? He studied the word. And he prays according to that, that word, right? But it's not only that. He also uh, is aware of how God works, right? So in verse 15, he prays this. He says, and now, O Lord, so 1 through 14 is this confession. Verse 15, he finally gets to the prayer request, right? And he finally says, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, now, O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away. He says, okay, God, please, in your mercy, turn away your wrath and restore Jerusalem, restore your temple, rebuild your temple, return your people. Right? Uh, but he does a, He prays to this God who led Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Right? In other words, this is how God works. This is who God is. This is God's plan. God is a God who loves to rescue captives. He loves to set free those who are in bondage. Right? There's a pattern for this. And so he prays not only on the basis of the 70 years, but he prays on the basis of this pattern of how God has worked. God, you are merciful. You're a God who rescues those who are in captivity. This is who you are. It's your plan. It's your promise. It's your character. Right? And he prays in line with that. Right? I think we make two great errors when we pray. First, we fail to understand what God is doing or how God works. So instead of praying in line with God's plan and God's will, we pray according to my plan and my program, right? And of course, that's easy because we all know what we want, right? And so we pray that. But we fail to see how that lines up with God's character and who he is, right? And then we don't, we don't, we don't know why prayer doesn't work because what we're really asking is my plan, not God's, right? And that, that doesn't work. Second, though, the second error we can make is we can know what God, what God promises. We can know his will. We can know how he works. But uh, we just sit back passively waiting for God to do his thing. Right? I love, that, I love this. Daniel doesn't say, I was reading in the book of Jeremiah, oh man, 70 years. Okay, good. I think I can go into retirement now. And he goes out by the pool, orders a drink, puts his feet back, and just kind of watches the clock, going, well, this is going to happen pretty soon. Right? That is not what he does. Right? What does he do? He prays. Right? He prays God's will into reality. Right? He prays God's will into existence. He says, God, this is what you're going to do. But he understood this amazing truth that God works his will out through and in partnership with us through prayer. Right? God commands us to pray. Um, and he calls us to ask for things. Right? And specifically to ask things in line with his purpose and will. But why does God do this? Why does God ask us to ask for what he's already going to do? Well, because he wants to, us to join with him and partner with him in accomplishing his plan. Right? I think this is incredible. Daniel prays this in the first year of King Cyrus, and in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus sends this group back to Israel to rebuild the temple, and not only that, but he pays for it. He, he funds it. Right? Does God answer prayer? Yes. Right? 
And the cool thing is Daniel got to be part of it. Right? Daniel doesn't go, well, it's a good thing God did what he was going to do anyway. No, Daniel goes, man, God answered my prayers. Right? And, and he worships God because of that. Right? Um, how much are we missing out on because we're just expecting God to do his thing and we're not asking? He, he commands us to ask. Right? Lastly, lastly, uh, Daniel it, prays ultimately for the sake of God's glory. Now, Daniel has a vested interest in this. Uh, maybe he wants to go back. He wants to see his people go back. He wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt. But Daniel is not so concerned about himself. His number one concern is God's honor and his name. Right? Verse 17, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Right, the temple, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city that is called by your name, which was a wreck, it, was, it had been destroyed. The temple had been leveled. It says, God, pay attention. See, look. For we do not present our pleas because, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Right? Dan is praying this not just for his own sake. He's not praying this so the people can be returned, so the captivity will end. What Daniel cares about more than anything is God's reputation. And he understands that as long as Jerusalem is in ruins, what it means is that the gods of Babylon have defeated the God of Israel. Right? As long as the temple where his presence once dwelled is level, it means that God's name is also desolate. Right? Who, would, who would give honor to a, a God whose temple is destroyed? Right? It's bad for God's reputation. It's bad for God's image for Jerusalem to be a wreck. Here's the amazing truth, right? He says, he says these people are called by your name. Uh, somehow, and I don't know how or why this works, but God has decided to hook his own name and his glory, his honor, and his reputation on his people, the people who bear his name. What do we call ourselves? We call ourselves what? Christians. It means we identify, we have the name of Christ upon us. Right? And you know what? The very glory and honor of Jesus rests with us. As we go, so goes his honor. Right? Where, we, where the church is a wreck, the name of Jesus is a wreck. Right? And what motivates Daniel to pray this more than anything is he wants to see the fame and honor and glory of God restored. Right? Uh, he wants to see God's name once, once again made great. And that's why he prays this prayer. Right? He wants, he wants uh, people to see that he is a God of mercy and to praise him as a God of grace and mercy. Right? 
what motivates you to pray? I know, in all honesty, what usually motivates me to pray is when I, when I need help, right? When I need something. And, and then I feel a lot more incentive to pray, right? And, and certainly God invites us. He invites us to bring our, our requests before him. But, but, but the thing that should matter most to us, that should motivate us more than anything else, is that God would be glorified through us, Right? as he meets our needs, as he answers our prayer, as he helps us, as he saves us, as he makes us like him, that through that his name would be made great in the world. Okay? Um, is that why you pray? It should be, right? It should be the first thing. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means, God, would your name be famous? Would your reputation be great in the world? Right? Okay? Uh, that's what should move us to pray. And the, the cool thing is Daniel kind of figured this out, right? That they're connected. God, when you restore Jerusalem, when you send the people back, when they rebuild the temple, it's going to make you look good. It's not terrible for us either, right? They're connected, right? God wants to bless you because his glory is connected with how things go for you, right? And so we can pray but our, our motive should be his, his name, right, his name. Um, all right, so there's some things to think about praying. Pray with humility, right? Praise God for who he is. Uh, through confession, come to understand our incredible need for grace, right? Our incredible need for grace and this incredible significance and weight of grace. Um, uh, Fourth one, pray according to his will and his plan, not our own. Pray for his glory. Pray for his glory. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.